0: Hello everyone, my name is Lane, I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm really excited because we are in week two of our new series, The Upside-Down Kingdom, where we are examining and unpacking the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' most seminal teaching on what the kingdom of heaven is all about. Jesus has ushered and is ushering in the kingdom of heaven, but this kingdom is a different kind of kingdom, and Jesus is a different kind of king. His ways appear completely upside down when compared to the ways of our world. And the Sermon on the Mount is about what that looks like. This was sort of Jesus' inaugural address to his kingdom. And it's easy for us to see that this is what we need. In order to move from fear to love, we need a reality to break into our own that rights wrongs, that forgives, that heals, that redeems, we all, all we need to do is really open our eyes, right? turn on the news, walk down the street, and we can see, we're aware, that things, not all things, are how they are supposed to be. All of us can point to a wound, or to a grief, or to a trauma in our lives, and remember feeling like, this is wrong. There must be something else. I quote this, uh, this, I use this quote ad nauseum, and I apologize if you're sick of it, but it, it applies a lot. And it's from C.S. Lewis where he writes this, If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. You see, there's something in us that knows innately that what we have here is ultimately not right. It's not how it's supposed to be. There's injustice, there's sickness, there's evil, there's brokenness, and it all flies in the face of human dignity and joy. It's not right. So what then is this other world that C.S. Lewis is talking about? What is this other world that the Creator created us for? Well, it's this one. But it's this one redeemed. It's this one restored. It's more like Eden. Eden is basically the kingdom of heaven come to earth again. This is what Sandra Richter, an Old Testament scholar, wrote. She said, God's original intent for humanity is God's people dwelling in God's place with full access to his presence. That's what Eden was, and this is what the kingdom is supposed to be. We have this awareness that tells us that if we do have this, if we have God, our people in God's place with full access to his presence, if we have that, We will have the home that our hearts are longing for. That's why we desire the kingdom. Because we know deep down that there must be something better than what we have. But because we know deep down, we have this impatient itch to try to fix it ourselves by our own means and methods, right? And this was the first uh, sin of Eden, was to try to care for the world in a way that we thought was best rather than God's. We often try to build the kingdom Without the king. Now, God's truth, his DNA, his goodness is woven into creation and into human beings. To some degree, we have this innate notion of what goodness is. We see God's goodness all around us in things like the beauty of nature, kindness of people, the laughter of a child. We see glimpses of what is good and joyous in this world. But what we found ourselves with is sort of this crime scene, right? Where someone's come into this room where there was this beautiful 10,000 piece completed puzzle with everything in its right place and they've just disheveled the whole thing and moved all the pieces everywhere. And now human beings, we know that's not how the picture is supposed to look. So we're trying to put it all back together. But we're all coming at it from different angles and different perspectives and we have different ideas of what we think the picture should look like and what it's supposed to be. So we try to Recreate the picture without the artist. We try to heal creation without the creator. We try to build the kingdom without the king. So we know we need a better world, but we try to build the kingdom without the king. We know we need a better world, but we sometimes try to build the kingdom without the king. Now, typically, us church folk, we think, oh yeah, that's worldly people. People who don't know God, they're doing that. People trying to heal the world without Jesus. But actually, we religious folk can sometimes be just as guilty Because we know Jesus, but sometimes we think we know better than Jesus. Even though we have a relationship with God, we think we have a better idea of how to be about his kingdom. We're like Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, cutting off people's ears when Jesus is trying to heal and forgive people. Sometimes we want our own way, so we force it to happen. You know, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus uses this really peculiar analogy. He says, Beware of the yeast of Herod. And beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. Yeast, what does that have to do with anything? Well, if you notice, um, what we use for our communion, this is matzah, this is unleavened bread. This is bread without yeast. This is what the Hebrew people used to celebrate the Lord's Supper of Passover. And the reason why there was no yeast was because yeast represented influence from pagan and outside cultures. Israel was supposed to be set apart, holy, and pure like the bread, without yeast. So the influence of Egyptian paganism, of the Babylonians, the Assyrians, they were not supposed to interfere with what God was trying to do in Israel. So Jesus is saying, hey, beware of the yeast of Herod, of Rome, of worldly influences, yes, but also beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. Beware of the yeast of religion without relationship. Beware of the yeast of practice without presence. There are two kinds of kingdoms that we try to build. The first is a kingdom of religion. These are kingdoms that are built without the king. Kingdoms that are often built on moralism or behavioral management. It's built on self-righteousness rather than Christ-righteousness. It's filled with hypocrisy. People running around with planks in their eyes, trying to pick the specks out of other people's eyes, right? Right? Or we try to build a kingdom that is of the empire, of Herod, where might makes right. Whether it's hard or soft power, we have the power to build what we want. And it's built on hubris. The self becomes the object of our worship. And it's selfish. It's bent on self-preservation, trying to overcome others in order to elevate myself. But Jesus is building a kingdom that is different. He is restoring to creation what it was intended to be, God's dwelling place with his people, with full access to the presence of God, where evil is defeated, where wrongs are made right, and where redemption and peace abound. That's what he's inviting us into, a kingdom that is upside down, a kingdom where when we wear crowns, we don't have jewels, we have thorns. And this kingdom is built on humility, it's built on self-giving love, and it's built on faithfulness. This is the kingdom that we are invited to build with Jesus. So I'll give you a little roadmap. map. Throughout this teaching, we're going to focus on four big questions of this passage. One, who is, in Jesus, who is Jesus inviting into this kingdom? Two, what does that mean? What is he inviting them into? Three, what is the cost of accepting that invitation? And if they do, what will they become? Those are the four questions we're going we're to kind of unpack together. And our time today is going to be a little different. It's going to be part sermon, part prayer practice, where after each of the Beatitudes that we kind of dive into, I'm going to give you some space to pray and to reflect with God on these things. Now, these Beatitudes, these blessings, this passage of Scripture is deeply profound. You could spend the rest of your life reflecting on these things and unpacking them and still not grasp them. So just know the 30 seconds that I'm going to give you to pray about it will not be enough take them into your week. Take them into this whole series. Take them into this time as we prepare for Christmas. It's coming. Prepare your hearts and minds to receive what this kingdom will be, to receive what Jesus is trying to give us. All right? So if you have a journal, if you take notes on your phone, now is the time. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this room. We invite you into the hearts and minds of everyone here as we breathe in. We breathe in your presence. We breathe out anxiety. We breathe out fear. We breathe out burden and we ask that in this space, it would be sacred, that we would receive from you what you want to give to us, that we would be transformed in your love, that we would move from fear and into your love. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so first question, who is Jesus inviting? Who is he talking to in this sermon? Well, the short answer is the poor. He's talking to the poor. When Jesus gives his inaugural address of his kingdom, he doesn't gather the 1%. He doesn't gather an exclusive guest list of generous donors who can give to his campaign. He doesn't get sponsors like NordVPN or BetterHelp or Manscaped or whatever. He doesn't gather, if you know, you know. He doesn't gather people of clout and influence who can help bolster his reputation. That's not what he does. He spends the first opening chapter of his ministry and his kingdom with the poor, with the ordinary, with the everyday, with the oppressed. In this version of the Beatitudes, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, and that's profound in its own way. We're going to unpack that. But in Luke's version of this teaching, it just says, blessed are the poor. An important aspect of the messianic hope and the messianic promise was good news to the poor. We're going to reference Isaiah a lot. Isaiah has a lot of messianic prophecies in them. In Isaiah 61, it says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, to release darkness form for the prisoners. The Messiah chose to reveal himself to the Jews at a time of deep oppression. These people, these are the people to whom God is giving his kingdom. Oppressed people, struggling people, discouraged people, people who perhaps feel that they have lost their saltiness, that they've lost their flavor. That maybe their light has been hidden under a bowl. It's been 400 years since their God has spoken through their prophets. They've watched their government be conquered again and again and again. And they're wondering, where is this Messiah? So the teachers of the law and the Pharisees are like, maybe if we just be good enough for God, we can earn the promise. They're in survival mode. They're just trying to make it. These are the people whom Jesus decides to recruit for his kingdom and his ministry. They are number one. So Jesus, he's been healing people. He's been casting out demons. He's been telling people to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they're amazed at what Jesus is able to do. He's able to heal people who've been crippled their whole lives. He's casting out demons. He's preaching as someone who has this crazy authority. So a lot of people are hearing about this Messiah, potentially, and they want to come and know more about him. So What is Jesus inviting the poor, the ordinary, the oppressed? What is he inviting them into? Well, once they've assembled and they're ready to hear, right? What is this kingdom all about, Jesus? What are you talking about? What's it going to be like? What sort of king are you? It says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. We kind of read this. It took me about 17 minutes to recite it last week. But what a lot of people think is actually this was days' worth of teaching. And what we, what we have in the Gospels is actually bullet points. So what is he inviting them into in this teaching? First, he invites them into the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. What a weird word. What does that mean? It basically translates to supreme blessings. When Matthew recalls the teachings of Jesus, he recalls that Jesus is blessing the people. He's blessing the crowds. This word blessed is interesting. We see, we see this idea in the wisdom literature, like in the Proverbs, and in this context, to speak a blessing over somebody was really profound. It was what it meant on the surface, like, you know, blessed are you, congratulations to you, joy and gladness to you for, etc." Yes, it does mean that. But also to be blessed in the Hebrew imagination was to receive shalom. Shalom meaning the right standing of relationship between us and God and us and one another. So when someone says, blessed are you, who, it does mean congratulations, joy to you, gladness to you, but it also means shalom be upon you, who. Blessing carried a lot of weight. When we say God bless you, when someone sneezes as a social grace, that's not what this was. For someone to bless someone else was profound. Now we're going to go through each of these blessings later, but one of the things that Jesus' followers probably wanted to know about these blessings was the timing. Okay, Jesus, you're saying, blessed are those who, blessed are those who, awesome. Do you mean like now? Do you mean later? Is this a Jeremiah thing? Are you talking about like our descendants will be blessed and we have to suffer? Like, what are you talking about? When is this going to happen? Is it when you restore Jerusalem to the city that it's supposed to be? What what does it mean? And this is where we have the gift and the privilege of hindsight, where we get to have a little more nuance in our theology. But this term... When Jesus was saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, this term at hand has been heavily debated. The the question is, what does at hand mean? Does it mean that the kingdom of heaven is here right now? Or does it mean that it's coming soon? And actually, I think the answer is yes. Yes. Jesus is declaring that this is going to happen one day, fully, but it is happening now. That those who mourn will be comforted today. Today but that also there will be an ultimate comfort which does away with any reasons you have to mourn in the first place. You will be comforted now in your grieving and in your mourning, and one day there will be no more sea, every tear, and grief will be wiped away forever. The kingdom of heaven is now, and it's not yet, and it's one day. Okay, so these blessings, these beatitudes, they're going to happen now and one day, but what are they exactly, these beatitudes? Are they gifts that we have no power to give ourselves, that we get blessed with? Or are they invitations of the kind of people Jesus wants us to become to participate in his kingdom? Again, I think the answer is yes. They are gifts and they are invitations. They are things that we could never, we, we, we are powerless to give ourselves and they are also invitations that we are empowered to step into as we follow him. They are both at the same time. We are welcomed into the kingdom of heaven freely, and we are empowered to embody the kingdom of heaven freely. So, let's unpack these blessings, and honestly, we could do a whole sermon series on just the Beatitudes, but we're not. So, um, reflect on these things, pray on these things as we go, and continue to reflect and to pray on them in your life, and especially this week. Okay, so who's blessed first? The poor in spirit. Are these folks materially poor? Yes, most likely, but there's also an invitation here for the listener to acknowledge their spiritual poverty, to embrace humility. There's an acknowledgement that we have a need for God, a heart that is repentant, right? The the theologian and scholar D.A. Carson said, To be poor in spirit is not to lack courage, but to acknowledge spiritual bankruptcy, it confesses one's unworthiness before God and utter dependence on him. Friends, this is really crucial. This is the first sign that someone is actually ready to say yes to Jesus, actually ready to, in, to accept his invitation. We see time and time again in the scriptures that even the worst, most flawed, most sinful human beings can be redeemed and not only forgiven, but empowered to do the work of God. That can happen, but what does it require? That one humble oneself. That one have a contrite spirit. That one be repentant of their sin. James 4, in James, James quotes the Proverbs and he says that God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. So the question is, have you you acknowledged your spiritual poverty? Have you embraced just how much you need Jesus? And if you are materially poor, if you feel that you have nothing to offer the world, have you accepted the truth that Christ has chosen you to be his agent? Reflect on these things and pray for a few moments. The next blessing is blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Again this goes back to the messianic prophecies like in Isaiah that those who mourn will be comforted. Now there's many reasons to mourn. We mourn the things that have been done to us. We mourn the things that we have done to others. And we mourn the things that people do to one another. As these crowds assemble, we have to acknowledge that there are probably those who are very uh, used to mourning. They probably mourn their corporate sin. There's mourning over the state of Israel, conquered and oppressed. There's mourning over, like us, their individual brokenness. But Jesus came to bring good news to those who mourn, that he is here to forgive and to heal. With Jesus, our mourning can be turned to dancing. Our sorrow can be turned to joy, right? That's the language in the Psalms, that that sorrow may last for the night, but that joy comes in the morning. Why is that? How is that possible? Well, to embrace the comfort of Jesus is not to discount the pain of our grief. It's simply to embrace the truth that that pain is not the end. It's not the end of the book. It's not the final chord in the song. When Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he weeps over his fallen friend, and he resurrects him back to life in the next moments. Although I may mourn today, I take comfort in knowing that I serve a Savior who has transformed that punctuation mark at the end of death from a period into a comma, that it is not the end of the story, that any sin, any regret, any loss or pain that I experience when it comes to the kingdom, when it comes to Jesus, there is hope. There is resurrection for these things. So our question today is, where do you need comfort in your mourning? Is there a sin that you won't forgive yourself for? Is there a loss that you can't seem to let go of? Is there a trauma that still tries to control you? Let's pray together and ask the Lord to comfort us in our mourning. The next blessing is, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. What is meekness? Meekness basically means gentleness and self-restraint or self-control. Now, there was this thought that those who will inherit the the land of Israel will be God's chosen people. That if they're faithful, that they will inherit the promised land. Jesus takes this another level up. And he says, hey, if you practice gentleness, if you practice self-restraint, not only will I give you Israel, I'm going to allow you to inherit the entire earth. This is bringing us back to our Eden mandate that we get to be fulfilled in our original purpose. But he says, if you're going to inherit the earth, if you're going to fulfill that Eden mandate, you have to do it my way. You have to be gentle. You have to restrain yourself from doing things the way that you want to do them. He says, when someone slaps you on the right cheek, slap them back. No, no. When someone slaps you on the right cheek, though you may want to jump them, turn to them the other cheek also. When someone forces you to go one mile, you go two. The way to the kingdom is different than what we would want to do instinctually. It's slower, it's more difficult, it requires more self-control, but it is infinitely better it requires meekness. It requires that we practice restraint, that we hold back when we have a right to retaliate, that we serve even when we'd rather be served. So let's take some time to reflect. Where does Jesus desire for you to have more meekness in your life? In what ways are you doing things your way and not his because they're just easier or faster? Take time to pray and reflect. The next blessing is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This language of hungering and thirsting for righteousness is like what we see in the Psalms, right? Psalm 42, that as the deer in the wilderness pants for water, that is how my soul longs for God. And there's this idea, when we say we long for righteousness, there is an element that is personal moral righteousness, that I want to do things that are right and believe things that are right. But also, this is about rightness. This is about justice. When we long for righteousness, we long for God's justice, for his rightness to be about people, to be about our lives. Now, do we hunger and thirst for that? Do we hunger and thirst for God to make things right in my heart and in the world? His justice, his rightness, his righteousness is better than mine. Am I desperate for his or am I comfortable with my own? Take time to pray and reflect. Then Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. What is mercy? Remember, we say this prayer about once a quarter, once a month around here. Lord, have mercy. Mercy is associated with olive oil. Olive oil is associated with healing. It's associated with a symbol of peace. And it's associated with the fuel for lamps. It's light. When we bring mercy, we're moving in ways that heal, in ways that bring peace, in ways that bring light. Now Jesus says, blessed are those who do that for others, for they will be shown mercy. Does he mean that we're going to be shown mercy by others? Sometimes. But let's be honest, a lot of the time not. A lot of the time when we show mercy, we don't get repaid that mercy. A lot of times when we get shown mercy, others will actually take advantage over us, the way they took advantage over Jesus. But here's what's really important. If we're seeking the mercy of man, Our mercy will always be an exchange. I can do good and justice for you in your life if you can do good and justice for me in mine. But the mercy of God's kingdom says, I will show mercy because I want to honor God. And mercy from God is better than mercy from man. Are you eager to show mercy? Do you seek to heal and to bring light and to bring peace on others? even when they don't deserve it, and even when you know they won't give it back. Take time to pray and reflect. Then Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Wow. Okay, what does pure in heart mean? It actually means a couple of things. Purity of heart meant one, an undivided devotion to God. So if I have a heart for God that is pure, it means that my heart is not, it, there's nothing competing for my devotion. For my faithfulness, that I am purely and wholly devoted to Jesus. He teaches later that no one can have two masters. You must serve one or hate one and love the other. This is what Jesus is asking for in the purity of our desires. There's also this inward moral purity which will help war against hypocrisy in my life. That not only do I obey God's commands and do the right things because that's what I'm supposed to do because I'm obligated to do so. No, it means that the heart of the law has worked its way into my heart, that the intent of why these laws exist are actually changing me, that I don't just not murder people because that would be chaotic. I don't don't murder people because I'm supposed to have love and compassion in my heart towards every human being. There's a restoration in my heart where I become pure, where my... My, my goodness is an outflow of what God is doing in me. And then it says those who are pure in heart, those who are devoted to me and don't have any competition, those who are, who are restored in their desires, that those people will see God. I'll be honest. I don't know if I totally know what that means. But I do know that in the Hebrew imagination, seeing God was impossible. He tells Moses, if you were to look upon me in all my glory, you would die. And what Jesus is saying, in me, if you allow yourself to receive a purity in your heart, you will see God. John even writes later that those who love see God. And this is definitely a now and not yet kind of thing. I have not seen God in all of his glory, like the vision in Isaiah or anything like that. But I do feel that in this life, when I tap into this kingdom dimension that Jesus gives to us, that I do get to see glimpses of God, that I get to see the presence of God in other people. I get to see God, but one day what is faith will be fully sight, and all of God and his glory will be revealed to us. So what aspects of your life compete for devotion to God, and what aspects of your life require an inner transformation of the heart so that your actions and your heart are aligned? Pray and reflect. Jesus then says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. This again lines up with the, the messianic prophecies, especially in Isaiah, that, God is, that the Messiah is called the Prince of Peace. In Isaiah 52, it says, Blessed are the feet of those who bring good news of peace. Bringing peace, bringing shalom, bringing harmony between us and one another and us in God, this is what we are meant to do as God's children. We're meant to carry on the family business of shalom-making, of peacemaking. We are to be apprentices in the family workshop, to bring harmony to all creation, including to our enemies. This would have been crazy for Jesus to say back then. They're like, what are you talking about? These evil, corrupt, pagan Romans who have all these evil gods who are oppressing us, who are crushing us with taxation, who are persecuting us, these you want us to make peace with them? This is the way of the kingdom, to be peacemakers, even when it's difficult. Have you been a good apprentice of the family business? Do you make peace and encourage harmony wherever you go? Do you move towards reconciliation with people, including your enemies? Take time to reflect and to pray. now, Jesus turns from peacemaking to persecution. <laughs> Interesting. The things that Jesus is asking his followers to do will not make a person popular. As humble peacemaking is one of our core values here, we'll be doing a whole series on that, by the way, when we come election season, so get ready for that. I'm serious. Um, <laughs> our promise if we are to be peacemakers, is to be people, or sorry, our promise of those who are persecuted because of righteousness that we are to inherit the kingdom of heaven, that we are to earn the approval of God, even if not by man. So, this is where we move into our last question, or our, our third to last question, second to last, the next question. <laughs> what is the cost of accepting Christ's invitation? The cost is persecution and suffering. Jesus says, Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Again, there's some of this now and not yet thing happening where there is some reward right now where even amidst some of my suffering and persecution, I have the approval of King Jesus. That's cool. But one day, there will be a reward. Maybe I'll even get to find out exactly how God used my suffering to bring about his glory and his goodness. Now listen, this is important. This is not just persecution from the world, from non-religious people. This is persecution from all sides, including religious people. Jesus made almost everyone uncomfortable. If one is truly walking behind Jesus, one will experience anger and persecution from every side not just one or the other. If we find ourselves experiencing persecution from just one side, perhaps that means that you've chosen one. Jesus doesn't want you to choose a side. He wants you to follow him. There's a difference here. Followers of Jesus will be persecuted by the world and by the religious spirit, by the kingdom of the Pharisees, by the yeast of the Pharisees, and by the yeast of Herod. We tend to think of persecution as Babylon opposing us, right? My government isn't upholding my Christian values. Entertainment and media, they're so sinful and worldly, etc. Jesus mentions that in the same way their prophets were persecuted before us. That's how we will be persecuted. Who were the prophets persecuted by? God's people. When God's truth was too much for them, they persecuted the prophets. And we'll read later that Jesus asked that their righteousness surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Guess who persecuted and didn't like Jesus very much? Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Listen, loving as radically as Jesus loved will make most people uncomfortable. Are you willing to be misrepresented and misunderstood for the sake of Christ's kingdom? Are you willing to love those whom Jesus loves even when people critique that you love them? Take time to reflect and to pray. Our last question, if we accept this invitation, if we accept accept the cost of accepting that invitation, what will we become? The answer is salt and light. Listen, salt and light, this is who we are. But often we forget who we were made to be. Why salt? Well, salt was actually a very valuable commodity in the ancient world. We actually get the phrase, a man worth his salt, Because soldiers were sometimes paid in salt because of their great value. Salt had a medicinal value. They used it for healing purposes. Salt was also obviously a seasoning. It gave flavor to food. It made things worth eating. And it preserved meat products. It preserved things from going bad. You you would, you would cover it in salt. But Jesus is talking to people who perhaps feel like they've lost their saltiness. Who've lost their flavor who've lost their fervor for life, who have lost their ability to heal, who've grown weary of preserving the good in this world. Do you resonate with that? I have to tell you, sometimes I feel like I've lost my flavor. Sometimes I feel like I've lost, sometimes I feel like I've grown weary of preserving the good. Sometimes we can lose our saltiness because of what we've done to ourselves, because of what others have done to us, The teaching of Jesus, though, implies that those who have lost their saltiness can be made salty again. I know he says the opposite, but that's because he's drawing an analogy to the real world. But in Jesus, he's able to break the laws of reality. (laughs) Things like death are no longer a permanent fate with Jesus. Because those who lose their saltiness, they're people who basically are practicing foolishness. Do the disciples ever act foolishly? Yes, all the time. Are they able to be redeemed and forgiven? Yes, all the time. If you feel like you've lost your sense of purpose, if you feel like you've, you've lost your flavor, if you feel like you have grown weary, guess what? Jesus has the ability to restore us. That's not the end of the story. Do not give in to that false story. Jesus wants to restore you because, he says, we are the light of the world. Light of the world. This is not a difficult metaphor. We are meant to bring light to the darkness, to reveal, to bring clarity, and to guide, to be revealed from under the bowl, to shine in the darkness. Like it says in Isaiah, again, in the land of deep darkness, a light has shone. Light is what it does, and it is what it is. There is no distinction. We'll get a little physical, uh, physics, on, not physical, <laughs> that's good. Um, physics, science is what I'm trying to say. There's science behind this that they were not aware of back then, but aware of now, and I think it's kind of cool. Light is both a particle and a wave. It is both things at the same time. It cannot be one without the other. If light is light, it shines. If it's shining, it's light. That is how we are. Again and again throughout the scriptures, we hear these words that we must not only practice God's commands, but we we must also uh, 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 know Jesus. And it's not enough just to know Jesus, but we have to put those things into practice, that faith without works is dead. When we are restored to who we were created to be, we are light. We are people who cannot help but shine because that is who and what we are. You do not have a choice in bringing light to the darkness if you are in Jesus. That is simply what you do you are a human being, and in that being, you cannot help but shine. So my question is, have you lost your saltiness? Have you hidden your light? The invitation for us is to step out of that fear, to step out of that shame, to take courage, and to walk with Jesus. When we walk with Jesus, we receive all these blessings that we've reflected on, that there is nothing of, of pain or brokenness that can't be healed and restored. That there is nothing that we need to be done that can't be done in the power of Jesus. That is what he's inviting us into. So, if you want to get out your communion elements, this is a perfect example of this, of being an invitation and being a gift. What Christ did on the cross was something none of us could have done for ourselves, but it is also a challenge and invitation to embody the same kind of sacrificial love that Jesus spilled for us, that we get to spill that for others. Now, this communion is meant to be for those who claim Jesus as Lord. And so if you have yet to make that decision, we're so glad that you're here. And I'm gonna invite you to hold the elements in your hands and to reflect on them, but to save this for if and when you make the decision to follow Jesus. And if and when you do, we would love to pray with you and celebrate with you And get you baptized. But right now we behold Christ's sacrifice. This is the invitation to his kingdom that in his death and resurrection everything that is wrong can be made right. Everything that is dead can be made alive and we receive this gift for ourselves and we are empowered to give this gift to others. So when Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took this bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood and the new covenant shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's stand together as we close in song.